He's big and strong, he's sad and mad, and a little bit funny. You are listening to the Crash Program. Content warning. If you're sensitive to stories about politicians who lie about a rogue wave flipping their uninsured lobster boat and seriously injuring their stern man, then you're going to want to skip this episode. Also, visit Crashberry.com to view the photos, charts, and other material mentioned in this episode. And if you want to support our investigative journalism that goes places others won't, check us out at Patreon.com backslash Crash Barry. Now, on with the show. Disinfomaniacs is a podcast about the liars, the grifters, and the fascist charlatans intent on destroying democracy. We will be reporting on how their propaganda trickles down to negatively impact local communities. We are here to expose, debunk, and pre-bunk the Disinfomaniacs. Welcome to Disinfomaniacs. Crash Barry here. This is episode 12, which I'm calling Maine Lawmaker's Story about his lobster boat capsizing. Then he was rescued by God. Smells real fishy. Also, a lobsterman was rescued after his boat capsized on Friday. Billy Bob Falkingham and his sturman were out at sea preparing to head home when a rogue wave crashed into his 40-foot boat, causing it to flip. Both men thrown into the water. There's their overturned boat right there. That's the hull on top, by the way. They managed to climb back on that hull and wait for someone to rescue them. But today's show is a little bit different fare than our recent content. Since lately, we've been focused on sketchy chuds, freaks, and creepy candidates for school board. By the way, here's an update. The subject of episode 11, Moms for Liberty Vice Chair, Justin Wynott in Wyndham, lost his bid for the RSU 14 school board by only a couple hundred votes. Today's episode, though, should make for a good holiday table conversation as we do a deep dive on Billy Bob Falkingham. He's the top Republican leader in Maine's House of Representatives with hardcore anti-immigrant, anti-Black Lives Matter, and a MAGA agenda who, a couple months back, in mid-September 2023, made the news across the state and internationally after claiming a rogue wave capsized and sunk his 40-foot lobster boat, and he credited his Christian God for saving his life. Maine House Minority Leader Billy Bob Falkingham says it's a miracle that he survived that incident after his lobster boat capsized Friday off the coast of Winter Harbor after what he says was a 40-foot wave that struck it and sent he and his stern man overboard. It felt like a freight train had hit us, the force of it, and it snapped us, snapped us over in an instant in the blink of an eye. After an hour, help came and brought them to shore. Falkingham says the fact that the boat did not sink is a result of a higher power. I honestly don't know how God works with angels, but I feel like there were um, angels that may have helped us, and I know God was with us, and I know the presence of God was there. So if it was the hand of angels or the hand of God, I know I know God was involved. Unfortunately, his GOP base, fellow lawmakers, and the media swallowed his fishy story, hook, line, and sinker. So, in this episode, I'm going to explain how Falkingham's claims are scientifically impossible, and will prove that a rogue wave didn't sink his boat. And we'll also talk about how Falkingham's stern man suffered serious injuries because his boss was acting like a real moron. Spoiler alert, Falkingham's boat sank because he was frigging around in a well-known dangerous spot near his home port of Winter Harbor while trying to photograph the surf breaking on Turtle Island Ledge for his social media. That's right, the leader of the Maine's House GOP destroyed his fishing boat and injured his colleague while trying to generate content 
for the socials. A state lawmaker and Maine lobsterman says he is lucky to be alive after a rogue wave flipped his boat on Friday. The boat capsized and left him stranded off of Winter Harbor for about an hour and then rescue came. Also, it appears Fockingham doesn't have the normal insurance that most responsible commercial fishermen carry. That's the word from down on the shore, at least. Which really sucks, because the worst part of this whole tale is how Fockingham's antics nearly killed his stern man. The stern man was stove up real bad. A severe and traumatic head injury knocked him out, temporarily. Plus, he has numerous wounds, contusions, and at least a couple broken bones. And because Falkingham supposedly neglected to carry protection and indemnity insurance, that's called P&I, which we'll get back to later, that's the insurance that covers third-party expenses related to accidents. So it appears he doesn't have that insurance, and it appears a stern man is shit out of luck looking for any sort of financial payout from Falkingham, unless he sues Falkingham, which may be in the works, my sources on the shore have confirmed the rumors swirling around the statehouse. The stern man has retained the services of a lawyer. At the time of recording, though, November 22, 2023, no lawsuit had yet been filed in Maine, according to court records. The top Republican in the main House of Representatives is safe after his boat overturned off the coast of Winter Harbor ahead of today's storm. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining us for a special Storm Center edition of New Center Maine at 11. Now, I had reached out to speak to the stern man, but he declined to be interviewed. That said, we'll return to his experience later. And I'm not going to name the stern man because it wasn't his fault that his captain was acting like a damn fool. And nearly killed him. And I sympathize with the injured fella big time. Because a stern man's job is pretty thankless. You get blamed for everything and you get paid 15% of the catch after bait and fuel. But you do a shit ton of unpaid labor like painting buoys, splicing rope, fixing traps, and shoveling bait. Plus the work of actually going out to haul the gear, which is the only time you actually get paid for it. I know this because in season two of this podcast, Tough Island, I explained I was a stern man for a couple of years back in the early 1990s on Matinicus, Maine's most remote inhabited island. Luckily, I was never injured, but if I had lost a finger or a hand or an arm or a leg during the workday, I would have been covered and compensated because my captains were both legit and carried the proper insurance. The same can't be said about Falkingham, apparently, which is especially infuriating because the dude loves to portray himself as this, like, Christ-fearing, working-class hero and friend to labor, though I'm not sure how that aligns with the rest of his beliefs. And, obviously, uh, Falkingham wasn't even quote-unquote working at the time of the accident, unless, of course, he considers it part of his job to post pictures and videos of breaking waves to social media. Also, it is crazy not to be fully insured because, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, commercial fisheries is second only to logging as the most dangerous job in America. And also, from our sources down on the shore, the word is that Falkingham is a dubba, or a dub, meaning he's not a highliner with good gear, a solid boat, and a solid work ethic. Word from a former sternman of Falkingham was mostly complaints about like constant mechanical breakdowns and lots of time spent on the mooring, you know, turning wrenches and busting knuckles for free. And while most commercial fisher folk have never worked on a sinking boat, according to Falkingham's bio at the Winter Harbor Lobster Co-op website, which was published long before the most recent incident, he'd already been sunk twice on older boats before the alleged rogue wave incident. Okay, like I said, this is a deep, deep dive on Falkingham for a couple of reasons. I don't want Falkingham and his cronies to be able to brush off this episode as like fake news or part of a George Soros-funded conspiracy to cancel the minority leader of the main House of Representatives. 
And Falkingham himself told the alleged rogue wave story to anybody with a microphone that would listen. So, by the time we're done, it will be obvious to even the most red-pilled chud that Falkingham is lying, or a dummy, and a big dummy at that, because the minority leader of the main House of Representatives put himself and his stern man at risk in order to snap pics to post on the social media. So you've heard parts of the various clips that aired on TV featuring Falkingham telling his miraculous tale to gullible, non-seagoing journalists. And text versions of those stories were published in places like Newsweek and Time Magazine and in newspapers across the globe. In the media retelling, the size of the rogue wave varied from 30 feet to 40 feet to 50 feet tall. But most of the other details were consistent with Falkingham's off-repeated narrative. A rogue wave came up out of nowhere and flipped his 40-foot lobster boat. Falkingham also frequently credited God in heaven above for him not dying. And, in at least one media appearance, he credited a possibly angelic form of a recently deceased young Maine lobsterman who may have helped push Falkingham up out of the water after his boat capsized. So we're going to hear him, in his own words, tell his version of what happened on September 15th, 2023, juxtaposed to my reporting, which is based upon comments and facts and experiences from various lobstermen, coasties, and other denizens of the deep in response to Falkingham's fishy tale. And, by the way, I am not going to give out the names of my sources because, as you might expect, folks down on the shore don't want to get in a pissing match with the minority leader of the main House of Representatives over whether or not it's a miracle that he's alive. And some folks asked to be anonymous because they didn't want to risk raising Falkingham's ire and risk having him dump a bucket of human feces on him. Huh? You may ask. Well... Back in 2003, Falkingham pleaded guilty to criminal mischief and disorderly conduct in connection to throwing the contents of a five-gallon bucket of human sewage on one of his foes. So when he was running for the State House in 2018, Maine Democrats publicized his shit-related arrest with the redacted court documents that claim Falkingham, and I quote, repeatedly hollered, fuck you, gave an obscene gesture to wit, the middle finger, and then threw a bucket of human excrement at or on The victim's names were redacted. Falkingham pled guilty to those charges. Also, when he was a younger dub, he'd been convicted of assault. And another time, he was convicted of drunk driving. But these days, Falkingham insists he's reformed. He's been born again with Jesus Christ as his personal Lord and Savior. And in order to preserve our source's anonymity, we're going to have help from the voice actor and friend of the show, Mr. Gary Johnson, who will read the words of lobstermen, coasties, pirates, and other sources connected to the alleged rogue wave incident. Regular listeners might remember Gary's performances in Tough Island, (laughs) and most recently, reading the mad rantings painted on the side of the house by a lunatic Trump supporter in western Maine. That was part three of Trans Panic in Maine, which is also episode nine of Disinfomaniacs. Gary, welcome back. Oh, thank you, Crash. How are you? I'm fine. I just hope this is better content than the last time I was here. (laughs) Uh, Yes, yes it is. But before we get into the gritty details and the basic science that proves Falkingham is not being truthful, let's talk about the spot where the incident actually occurred, Turtle Island Ledge, which is located just south of uninhabited Turtle Island, surrounded by the Mount Desert Narrows, part of Frenchman's Bay, around the Skudik Peninsula, leading up into Winter Harbor, which is Falkingham's hometown and home port, and part of his legislative district. He represents House District 12, which also includes the towns of Franklin, Gouldsboro, Hancock, Sullivan, and Steuben. Winter Harbor is located about five and a half miles due east of Bar Harbor, across the bay, as the gull flies. And Winter Harbor is reportedly so named because the inner harbor doesn't freeze in the winter. 
It's a very quaint fishing village with a population of about 500. During the warmer weather, the population triples thanks to Grindstone Neck, which is a summer colony for rich folk from away. And Winter Harbor also serves as the gateway to the Skudik Point section of the Acadia National Park. The whole region is stunningly beautiful, and this part of the Maine coast in particular has a long and rich seagoing tradition. So, Turtle Island Ledge is where Falkingham's boat went down and is a notoriously dangerous spot well known to locals. Gary, please read from this story published in the Bangor Daily News on October 28, 1973. A Coast Guard search Friday failed to locate a lobsterman missing in Frenchman's Bay. The body of Ralph Byers Sr., 57, of Winter Harbor was recovered following the sinking of his lobster boat, but his 22-year-old son, Kenneth Byers, had not been found as of Friday evening. The lobster boat, apparently, sank rapidly after hitting ledges off of Turtle Island near Grindstone Neck. Okay, so in the Skudik Peninsula area, this is a very well-known sinking, even to this day. Because Ralph Byers had been a very important fella. He was an experienced fisherman. Uh, he was also on the school board. He was the fire chief, uh, a former harbor master, and an officer at the local fisherman's co-op. So it was big news when he died back in 1973. And then tales of the tragedy resurfaced in 2016, which is why I know Falkingham is aware of the sinking. Tales about buyers were retold during the 50th anniversary of the founding of the annual Winter Harbor Lobster Boat Races because Ralph Byers was one of the founders and the chairman of the original races held annually in August since 1966. And, in fact, the races are now known as the Ralph E. Byers Memorial Races. Falkingham has raced in and attended the races for his whole life. Okay, quick aside here for those not familiar with the uh, uh, sport of lobster boat racing. Uh, lobster boat races are a big deal down east. It's a way for folks to waste fuel and for the crowd to get good and drunk while other people waste fuel. And there's a whole bunch of organized events located at different harbors and islands up and down the coast all summer. In fact, some fellas, like my Captain Donald on Matinicus, outfitted their boats with huge engines in order to compete during the races. And when and if we see the boat races being canceled, that will be a sign that the lobster industry is on its way out because racing doesn't come cheap. Anyways, on that fateful day back in 1973, it was around 9 a.m. when Ralph Byers' 30-foot wooden lobster boat, named Pam, sank, and he and his son died while hauling their gear near Turtle Island Ledge. The Pam sank at almost the exact spot that Falkingham's boat went down 50 years later. Going way, way back, I found one reference to the schooner Abbey running hard aground and abandoned on the ledge in January 1907 when the captain, his wife, and a crewman were dramatically rescued. It's no secret Turtle Island Ledge is not a place just to, like, hang out and snap pictures for the socials, especially with a hurricane, a hurricane named Lee, on her way to Maine. And two days before Falkingham's boat went down, the Coast Guard issued a warning to local mariners to stay away from spots with breaking waves and surf, like Turtle Island Ledge. However, the weather on that Friday morning for the offshore fishing grounds, where Falkingham and others from Winter Harbor go to haul their lobster traps, out there is practically flat calm. There was a sea surge, but you'd only see it close to land when the waves broke on rocks, ledges, and shoals. This is the George Hildrick Tyler Show. State Representative Billy Bob Falkingham, a lobsterman, a lawmaker, and we're going to say this, maybe a man who's lucky to be alive. You gave us quite a scare. Billy Bob, welcome back to our program. What happened on Friday? Now we're going to hear Falkingham tell his story on the WVOM Voice of Maine radio show on Monday, September 18th, three days after his boat sank. Good morning, Rick. I'm uh, so glad and thankful to be able to talk to you this morning. I'm thankful by the grace of God to be alive. And honestly, that's the only reason why I 
decided to come on and talk to the talk about this this morning because uh, I feel a strong moral obligation to tell my story and tell what happened to us and uh, <laughs> um, I saw miracles happen and uh, I guess I'll just I'll just tell this story I don't know how it'll it'll come out but I feel like I need to tell it uh, me and my stern man had just finished lobstering ahead of the hurricane that day and we'd got our, the rest of our traps baited up and we were having a short day and we were on our way in and we were on our way in we were watching the the some of the waves break on the ledges in Turtle Island that were starting to build a little bit for the hurricane. So According to Falkingham, they've been innocently watching some waves break on Turtle Island Ledge during their way home after hauling traps. I guess that could be considered true, but he did leave out a major detail. Minutes before his boat sank, he'd been playing in the surf off Scudic Point, about two miles from where he sank. Falkingham put his boat real close to the ledges over there, while both he and his stern man took pictures of the breaking waves from a very unsafe distance. And how do we know this? Because a local photographer was down on the point, snapping pictures from land, and saw Falkingham's boat in the surf and took several photos of it. And I put those photos and the photographer's social media posts about the images at crashberry.com. And in the first photo, you can clearly see Falkingham is done working for the day, because he doesn't have on his oil clothes, and he's using his phone to take pictures or video of the wave action. Now, I've been in contact with the photographer because I was curious about the timestamp on the photos, which places Falkingham playing in the surf at Scudic Point at 11.48 a.m. Gary, read what else the photographer told us. I took the pictures, showed them to everyone, and even sent some of them to Billy Bob. I don't think he was amused, and since I have photos of both guys taking pictures, makes me wonder if a driverless boat was safe in those waters, but I'm no boater. It was the only boat I've ever seen in that area when there was a surf warning, and definitely the only one out wave watching that day. The boat was in the cove right across from what used to be the little ranger station going to the Scudic Institute, where the heated bathroom is open all winter. The boat was still there when we left Scudic. We were there from about 10.45 until noon. I've examined those photos closely over the last week, and I gotta say, as someone who does have a lot of experience around the water, a prudent mariner wouldn't be doing what Falkingham was doing in his lobster boat, especially considering the warning about the coming storm. Okay, let's go back to the WVOM tape. That we're starting to build a little bit for the hurricane and uh they were kind of cool they were rolling a little bit they i've seen a lot bigger uh, and we were just about ready to finish our way into the harbor when i saw something i never want to see again uh it was honestly i kind of I, I know rogue waves are were real before that but i'd I, I'd never seen a real one before, like I saw that time. Uh, we were we were in fairly deep water. We I feel like we were in probably 50 feet of water, and waves just don't break in that amount of water that far from shore where we were. This is where he introduces the concept of the rogue wave. First of all, there is disagreement in the maritime community over whether or not rogue waves that cause accidents actually exist. It's not unheard of for folks to blame rogue waves to explain mishaps instead of admitting operator error. But in this case, for the time being, let's take Falkingham at his word. Also, for the record, the generally accepted definition of a rogue wave is a wave twice the height of the average waves surrounding it. We were in fairly deep water. We were, I feel like we were in probably 50 feet of water. Okay, a quick explainer here. A good lobsterman is very knowledgeable about the depth of water in their neighborhood, 
and the type of bottom as well, like whether the ocean floor is rocky or ledge or muddy, because those details, water depth and bottom type and also the time of year, that dictates lobster activity, you know, movement and their location. Also, it's standard equipment on lobster boats to have a fathometer, which determines water depth using sound waves. So, if Falkingham says he was in 50 feet of water, I guess we have to believe him. And waves just don't break in that amount of water that far from shore where we were. Bingo. It's basic wave mechanics. A wave needs a trigger to break, like a ledge or a rock or a shoal. Otherwise, the rule of thumb is that the wave remains a swell and doesn't break until its height exceeds the depth of the water. Now, some say it's three quarters of the depth of water, but we're really just quibbling here. Taking Falkingham at his word that he was in 50 feet of water, that meant in order for that wave to break, it needed to be somewhere between 37 and 50 feet tall. For reference, that's a wave about the height of a four-story office building. So, if Falkingham is to be believed, it meant that somehow a giant wave, the height of a four-story building, escaped the notice of all the fellas still lobstering offshore, and the people on shore taking photographs, and this huge wave made it up the Mount Desert Narrows and only hit Falkingham's boat. And, to the best of my knowledge, nobody else has reported seeing the giant wave. One more thing, and I'm bringing this up only because it was Falkingham who introduced this rogue wave alibi. Let's say that the alleged rogue wave actually did break at 40 feet tall. The wave action in Frenchman's Bay at the time would have had to be 20 feet tall. According to the rules of rogue waves, I say a rogue wave is twice the height of the average surrounding sea. And we know from the photos minutes before over at Skudik, and from the word of other fishermen, and even Falkingham himself, the weather was nice and the sea was calm, unless you were in among the breakers. So I'm going to repeat this slowly, so the state representative from Winter Harbor and his fans can understand. It is scientifically impossible for a wave to break when and where Falkingham said it did. Let's hear some more from his WVOM radio interview. And we saw a wall of water coming at us, just a huge mountain of a wave. And I don't know where I was going to go, but I got to the helm and accelerated the boat to try to get away from it. And the last thing I, I you know, remember is a snapshot of that moment when the wall of water struck the starboard side of my boat and it was way higher than I was, higher than the above the boat the wave had crested and I just remember the force when it hit and uh, it hit the side of the boat like a freight train and the water came came in the boat uh, came through the boat and I remember when it hit me, I just, I knew we weren't in trouble. And I don't, the the next thing I remember is being in the water. So I don't have an actual memory in my brain of the boat rolling over. Knowing that his tale is scientifically impossible, it makes it tough for me to take the rest of his narrative seriously. Again, even if I try to give him the benefit of the doubt, I have a hard time believing that he happened to like glance over his shoulder and see a giant wall of water coming out of nowhere, and that wave would hit the starboard side of his vessel, flipping the boat over and tossing Falkingham into the ocean and injuring his stern man. This sounds more like a cartoon depiction of a tsunami rather than a true story especially when it comes to the following revealing detail Falkingham has shared many, many times now. The wounds on my hand were from clenching something so tightly that I pulled the calluses off the palm of my hand. And I didn't, I was, didn't know what that was until I later remembered that I had grabbed the, the steering wheel. It's a bronze steering wheel with a 
ring around it. I grabbed the steering wheel so tight when the wave hit me, it pulled me away so hard that it tore the calluses off my hand and it blew my pants and underwear. This is kind of funny, actually, but it isn't. But it, it blew my pants and underwear right down around my ankles. It hit me so hard. If it wasn't for the Starman's injuries and Falkingham's alleged lack of insurance, you could almost consider this an amusing tale. Here's the headline. Lawmaker lobsterman disrobed by rogue wave that sank boat while getting content for social media. That would have been kind of amusing. Instead, it's been spun into this tale of divine intervention and like the proof of God's existence and the said God's involvement in the everyday goings-on of State Representative Billy Bob Falkingham. But before we get to God and alleged angelic intervention, let's hear what actually happened to the stern man. Gary, please read the message from another source down on the waterfront with first-hand knowledge of the day, telling us what the stern man experienced after the vessel capsized. When the boat flipped over, it threw Falkingham out. But the stern man got hit by all the stuff on deck and then got hit by the boat. He got knocked out, briefly, broke his left arm, and fractured his left wrist, and then came to trapped under the boat. He took a deep breath and went to swim out from under it, and that's when he realized his arm was broke. Falkingham had gotten up on the bottom of the boat, and the stern man started yelling and then swam over, and Falkingham helped him get on. I was in the harbor when Falkingham's cousin brought them in, and the stern man was in hard shape. Huge gash on his forehead, nose broke, and lots of cuts. Another lobsterman had to hold his arm in place so it didn't dangle down while waiting for the ambulance. Uh, that sounds terrifying to me. Like many people with experience on the high seas, I have a healthy fear and respect for the power of the ocean. But back to the alleged story, okay? If Falkingham wasn't hit by a rogue wave in 50 feet of water, why did his boat capsize? Lobster boats, especially offshore vessels like Falkingham's, are designed for rough weather. And they're not particularly prone to capsizing. When I asked my sources up and down the main coast, none of them could ever recall hearing a 40-foot lobster boat flipping over while underway. And these dozen knowledgeable folk expressed disbelief at the notion of a rogue wave flipping the boat, most of them suspected it was somehow Falkingham's mistake, perhaps due to operator error, maybe due to inattention because he was busy snapping photos of the surf. However, thanks to another very knowledgeable local source, I now have some real details about what caused Falkingham's boat to flip and for the stirman to get stove up all the hell. Gary, please read this message. He was down to Turtle Island Ledge, where we have all been told a million times not to go. Two people died there, years ago, in the same exact spot. There are two ledges, the inner and outer breaker. He is right between them, and the outer one broke and rolled them over. Very simply put, and when I shared that info with my panel of shoreland experts, uh, there was agreement that that scenario sounded a hell of a lot more plausible than a rogue wave targeting the minority leader of the main House of Representatives. Over on Crashberry.com, I've posted the nautical chart and other images for the specific area that we're talking about. There's a Google Earth image from a source notated with the approximate location of where the vessel flipped and where the vessel was recovered. And then I transposed those locations onto the nautical chart. You'll see a red rectangle that I added. That signifies the site of the vessel capsizing. And the red circle I added is the approximate area of where the boat was recovered. Now, for listeners who can't look at the chart right now, I, I want to explain something. Not only are the Turtle Island ledges clearly marked on the chart. There are two asterisks on the chart, just outside those ledges. And on a nautical chart, the asterisk is a way the map denotes a rock that's exposed at low tide. So, in all likelihood, that's where Falkingham was, just inside those two rocks and just outside the actual Turtle Island ledges. We're talking about a very narrow split of ocean surrounded by known dangers with a hurricane approaching. And, I guess, if he was side to the surging ocean, maybe getting ready to snap an action photo, 
it's totally possible that a breaking wave as small as 15 foot, in theory, could flip over his lobster boat because his lobster boat has a 15-foot beam. That's all it needs. Oh, uh, excuse me. Crash, can I say something? Sure, Gary. Now, I've known lots of con men, liars, cheats, and uh, scumbuckets over the years. And the thing that I've noticed is how they always like to add details to distract from the con. Now, I understand Falkingham doesn't have insurance, so I'm not seeing a, a con here. At least a financial one, anyways. But when thinking about his tail, I'm not thinking about the depth of water or where he was actually located. I'm thinking, poor fella, rogue wave sunk his boat and stripped him half naked. You know, that's my takeaway. Not, not the depth of water or how far up inside the danger zone he was. Okay, being stripped half naked is a weird part of this tale, but it's also key to his story because he was wearing sweatpants, which ultimately, after pulling up his tidy whities he used as a compress to apply pressure to the gash on his stern man's head. This is after the boat flipped, and somehow Falkingham, who is a big fella, was able to climb up onto the bottom of the now overturned boat, and the propeller was still moving. And his pants and underwear were around his boots. But let's go back to the WVOM tape and hear him tell it. So two men had a 40-foot boat flip on them in a rogue wave and both came to the surface. I consider that an absolute miracle. There's no way we would have done that without God. Again, I don't want to belabor this too much because, after all, it is fucking him's right, I guess, to believe that his Christian God saved him. But this is my question. Using that logic, why did God send the rogue wave in the first place? And why did God flip the boat, severely injuring the stern man and destroying Fockingham's livelihood? It was like a war scene, though. The smoke filled the air. The engine was still running. The wheel was spinning. I hollered that. He hollered back. I said, you got to get on the boat. You got to get on the boat. He said, I can't. My arms broke. And we lost sight of each other because the smoke and soot was so thick from the exhaust. It was just covering us. It was blinding us. Uh, He reached out his good arm, and I grabbed him and pulled him aboard and helped him up. And we're on the boat there, which was floating upside down. The smoke was still covering us, and I don't know how long it was, but probably within a minute or two, the engine finally stalled, and then the smoke went away. We kicked our boots off. kicked his boots off. Um, I had to help him get his oil pants off because he only had one good arm. He had a really bad uh, gash on his uh, forehead. He had some really bad lacerations on his face. I took my pants and wrapped him up. I said, I gotta wrap you up, bud. First thing I I told was, you're you're gonna be all right. We're gonna be all right. God's with us. And I'm I didn't used to have faith like this, but I've I've been building building my faith and having a relationship with God. And I know that it was really important in that moment because I felt I felt like God was with us. I know God was with us. And I just I started praising him, thanking him for being alive. I said, Thank you, God. We praise you, God. We love you, God. Thank you for keeping us alive. Please keep this boat safe. Please get send help. Sounds like they're both lucky to be alive. While all this is happening, the boat's emergency electronic beacon transmitted a message to the Coast Guard station on the mainland with an approximate location. According to Falkingham, the Coast Guard called his wife and asked if she knew where Billy Bob was. She thought he was still out to haul, so she raced down to the shore to the Winter Harbor Lobster Co-op, and here's what he said happened next. We were on that boat for uh, about an hour, as near as I can tell from when the EPIRB call went to my wife and from when we were rescued but the boat floated upside down just like it was meant to it didn't it didn't sink an inch it stayed in safe waters we didn't even have a wave that was big enough to lap up onto the where we were matter of fact i remember how um the bottom of the hull is black and it warmed up and it was warm in the sun and we didn't even we didn't even 
get wet on there. I dried out on there. And uh, when I saw a boat coming from all the way from offshore, I could see the spray coming off it. I knew it was my cousin Mikey. And he came for us when he got the call at one eleven, and in seven minutes he came to me. He knew right where to go. And when we stepped onto Mikey's boat, we stepped off dry. We didn't even get wet doing it. And he took us in. The ambulance was was right there. Um, but within moments after we Mikey got us, the boat went under the sea. Oh and I know that if it wasn't, if we didn't have God with us, I don't know what would have kept that boat afloat for over an hour like that until we got rescued. And I just, that's why I just feel, feel obligated to tell that story because people need to know that God is real. And if you have a relationship with him, you'll feel his presence when you need it. Okay, whatever. Believe what you want to believe, Billy Bob. The thing is, that's a pretty weird statement coming from a dude who flipped his lobster boat, resulting in his employees' serious injuries. Implicitly here, he's saying his stern man's relationship with God isn't good enough to save him from pain and suffering, but Falkingham's relationship with God protected Billy Bob. I mean, yikes. Okay, here's one more thing about the moment of rescue. But within moments... After we, Mikey got us, the boat went under the sea. That's not true, actually. But the detail of the boat sinking immediately after the rescue adds to the miraculous nature of the tale, implying like that the Christian God kept the boat afloat until help could come to save Falkingham and the Stern Man. While we don't know the exact time of the sinking, we know it wasn't when Falkingham claims it was. Because someone from down on the shore sent me a photo, I've put that up also at CrashBerry.com, and it was taken just before the overturned boat went down. I don't know who took the photo. I know it was someone that was in Falkingham because he was already ashore in the ambulance headed for the hospital when this photo was snapped. And we, we really don't know why the boat sank. Because in theory, because of the air trapped in the engine compartment and bilges and forward cabin, the boat could have stayed afloat upside down for indefinite length of time. Unless, and this is a major unless, there were some holes poked in the hull allowing trapped air to escape. And then possibly the boat would take on more water through those holes and sink. Holes made by ledges perhaps during the mishap. But nobody really knows why the boat went down except for maybe Falkingham's God and the angels who, according to the minority leader of the main house of representatives, were at the scene of the incident. About a week later, the vessel was recovered. And, no surprise, it's not a pretty picture. You can see for yourself over at CrashBerry.com where I've posted an image from social media showing what appears to be Falkingham's father's lobster boat towing his son's boat. Uh, well, that's what it looks like, sort of. I mean, you can't actually see Falkingham's formerly sunken boat, which is a bad sign, the hull in the photo was still submerged below the surface. But you can see the fenders and airbags that they used to raise the vessel from the briny deep. And there's one more thing about the big interview on WVOM that rubbed me the wrong way. Again, while Falkingham has every right to speak his religious beliefs, I've got the right to critique and question that speech because uh, Falkingham should think more carefully when he opens that flap trap of his. Towards the end of the radio interview, the subject of Tyler Michaud comes up. Now, Tyler was an 18-year-old Maine lobsterman who died this summer in mid-July while hauling his gear alone off the town of Addison. His body, though, wasn't discovered until mid-August, which was a very long and painful wait for everybody involved. Anyways, at the time of this interview, the grief was still raw for those that loved this young fellow who died so tragically. It's been really hard for the community since we lost Tyler around here. He was good friends with my daughter. He was a perfect kid. He was, um, I think he was an angel in life and, an, and probably, uh, he's probably an angel right now doing, doing works for God. He was an amazing kid. And I don't know, I, 
I don't know how angels work or how God works with angels, but maybe Tyler's the one that that pushed us out of the ocean. I don't know. I don't know if Walkingham really believes that an angelic version of young Tyler saved him, or maybe it's just like this uh, religious story to play up to his Bible-thumping base. However, even if he does believe that Tyler, the angel narrative, I'd say it's in real bad taste to float the idea during an extended radio interview less than a month after Tyler's body was discovered. First of all, we're going to say thank you for sharing your, your testimony. I'm going to call it that and your account and having the faith that you had and still being with us this morning and listeners, if we, if we took the time to read all the messages coming in right now, we'd be, we, we, we go the whole three hours, the rest of the show. I appreciate the opportunity to, you know, tell that story. And I don't, I don't know how I told it. I'm not a professional storyteller or anything like that. I'm, I'm just a fisherman. I don't know. It's probably the only thing I've ever really been good at is catching lobsters. But um, you have to, I have to tell people that God is real and God is alive and um, God is not dead. God is with us. I posted another photo over at CrashBerry.com of Falkingham's boat, this time in a cradle on the ramp at Winter Harbor Town Landing, getting ready to be hauled off to some graveyard or a shop. And I gotta say, looking at that wreck of a hull, full of holes, roof torn right off, it looks like the vessel is destroyed beyond repair. But you never know. And I gotta wonder if Falkingham intends to fix the boat with some help from maybe the Lord in heaven above. The vessel, by the way, is named, or was named, 51. According to Falkingham, he named it after the basketball jersey number of a long-dead male cousin. Uh, it is, by the way, considered bad luck to give a male name to a vessel. Another odd fact, if the boat does have a male name, tradition dictates that the vessel still be referred to as a she. And if you're still looking at that boat photo right now, yes, that is a U.S. flag painted on the starboard bow of the boat. I mean, it's painted backwards, like it's uh, flying or fluttering in the wind. And on the port side, he painted also backwards the Marine Corps flag because Falkingham served as a Marine Corps reservist for three years. Painting an American flag on the bow of a vessel is a flag code violation. According to flag code, American flags are to be flown from the stern of a vessel in port or aloft underway, not painted on the side. A flag code violation, though, is the least of his worries right now, because if a lawsuit is filed, the case would likely be a big loss for Falkingham. I mean... A court is sure to find that he committed some sort of gross negligence that resulted in bodily injury. Messing around in the surf for photos for the socials is sure to come up. Also likely to come up would be the apparent lack of a lifeboat, uh, which is required because, because Falkingham holds a federal offshore lobster license. His biggest problem, though, is his apparent lack of protective and indemnity insurance. While not required, the lack of P&I is just bad. It's real bad. I mean, there's no other way to put it. Yes, it's expensive coverage and the cost depends on the size of boat and crew. However, legitimate fishermen consider P&I to be just part of the cost of doing business while protecting the interest of your crew against accidents occurring at sea. I don't know why he doesn't apparently carry P&I. Maybe because Falkingham, whose libertarian background includes like this diehard support for Ron Paul, maybe he just doesn't like the insurance industry. Or, maybe, due to his political pursuits, the reality is that he is not a full-time lobsterman. He's not a full-time lobsterman, despite that's what he presents as his image. Because serving as minority party leader makes it virtually impossible to tend traps during the legislative session, so maybe he couldn't justify the costs of p insurance because he was spending all his time in Augusta which would mean he shouldn't have taken another person aboard that vessel for work without understanding that he, and he alone, was liable personally for any mishap. And there's another strange aspect to the tale. Both Falkingham and the Sternman, who also worked as a legislative aide at the Statehouse, according to folks in Augusta, they both likely would have had health insurance coverage through their jobs as legislative employees. However, in the days following, an online fundraiser was set up 
on GiveSendGo.com, which is a platform like GoFundMe, but for Christians and far-right extremists. Uh, we've mentioned it before. Uh, Hammer and the Blood Tribe and NSC131 use this site to raise money. And this fundraiser campaign was created by, and this is according to the listing, by the main House of Representatives. Gary, please read the listing. Billy Bob and his sternmen were in a terrible boating accident over the weekend that resulted in injuries and a total loss to Billy Bob's lobster boat. Both men are dedicated to serving the state of Maine as well as their families. Let our community come together and help them with medical expenses and get them back on their feet. Whoever organized the campaign, and I'm pretty sure it wasn't the main House of Representatives, had high hopes to raise $25,000. As of today, though, um, just $3,547 have been raised via 47 donations. Several, by the way, given by Democratic lawmakers. And according to the Give, Send, Go page, the money will be directly donated to Falkingham, which is lame because if anybody should be getting money from the accident, it's a stern man. Who? from what I hear, is still having a tough time. On November 9th, the Sternman posted a fairly gruesome photo of his face on Facebook, all stove up, to put it mildly. It appears the picture was taken in the hospital, maybe just after being rescued. And I've looked at this picture frequently this last week. Uh, lots of blood and gashes and cuts. The injuries look really painful. And obviously, these are just the surface wounds, and we can't see the impact of the broken bones or the head injury. I know that the stern man is lucky to be alive. I just hope that the injuries don't plague him for the rest of his life. The stern man made a single terse comment to accompany the post of his photo. Quote, shouldn't have happened, unquote. That's it. Shouldn't have happened. And he didn't respond to any questions from his friends asking what happened. The post received 25 likes and 15 comments. On the other hand, Falkingham's Facebook post about the alleged rogue wave and miraculous rescue received a thousand comments and 3,000 likes and over 3,300 shares, often with links to the fundraising campaign. And it was shared mostly by religious folk and politicians, most notably Maine's senior senator, Susan Collins. So obviously, Falkingham had been a active social media user as both a lawmaker and a lobsterman, posting on a very regular basis. At the time of the capsizing, remember, he was getting content to post on the socials. He posts about his kids and hunting and his politics and lobstering and the legislature. However, he's been 100% quiet on Facebook since November 3rd on his politicians page and silent since October 28th on his personal page. And word from Augusta is that he skipped the November 9th legislative council meeting at the state house, which is like this very important meeting for the folks responsible for the overall management of the legislature. And one of his last posts on Facebook before going quiet, which I'll put up at crashberry.com, is an October 24th post of Falkingham grinning ear to ear, sporting a new backpack sent to him by a backpack manufacturer who heard he lost his favorite backpack when the boat sank. Ugh. I mean, I cringe looking at it, knowing what I know now about the whole debacle, especially the whole saved by God and angel bit. Um, I guess I shouldn't expect any better from a, like an anti-immigrant, MAGA-loving, Trump-supporting, end-times Christian like Billy Bob Falkingham. I mean, he could have used this incident as a learning opportunity and um, the chance to warn folks not to mess around in the surf or to take other foolhardy risks in order to impress followers on the social media. Instead, he chose to lie about his mistakes, replacing errors with claims of divine intervention and, and giant waves. Next month, we're starting a new pod series called Christian Nationalist Lawmakers in Maine, reporting on the takeover of the Maine GOP by lawmakers who believe the United States is a white Christian nation under God and should stay that way, which means for sure that Falkingham will reappear in our reporting if he remains minority leader of the House of Representatives, that is. Oh, excuse me, Crash. Yeah, Gary? Seems to me that Falkingham's drama at sea takes on a kind of like a mythical status, you know, involving the rogue wave and God and angels and all that. I could totally see this being a good story. Uh, he, he'd tell it over drinks or up to camp while sitting around the fire. I'd spice it up a little bit, though. 
like bringing the devil. Nothing makes a story more compelling than demons and such. And if you believe God intervenes, why not Satan? Plus, it will take care of that nagging detail. How did a wave break in 50 feet of water? How did a wave break in 50 feet of water? I'll tell you, it was the Prince of Darkness, angry with the good Christly works promoted by Falkingham in the legislature. Satan saw him messing around taking pics and used the opportunity to conjure up a giant road wave out of nowhere. And as the boat flipped wheels above, grabbed Billy Bob by the waist and yarned on the fellow's sweatpants so hard that his trousers and underwear came down around to his ankles. And if it weren't for his boots, they would have come completely off and he would have lost his pants and drawers. But them boots spoiled the old red bastard. Thankfully, allowing Billy Bob to be rescued by the angel under the power of God and eventually use his sweatpants to apply pressure to a stern man's head wounds. Yikes. I want to end this episode with a story about a real hero and a real lobsterman instead of a poser. This is an excerpt from Chapter 6 of Tough Island, telling of a real dramatic at-sea rescue with one of my personal heroes, Captain Vance Bunker, a righteous fellow, and he's a sweet and generous dude who I never heard mention divine intervention during his work a day. And Vance Bunker is just one of many wondrous examples of the countless kind and brave fisher people working the waters off the rocky coast of Maine. From my perspective as a stern man, Vance Bunker was an awesome guy, a gentle and funny giant. He was an island renaissance man. He was old enough to remember hauling spruce traps, but young and intelligent enough to embrace modern improvements. Vance was smart about the ocean and drove a boat like it was an extension of his body. And he could fly. On several occasions, he gave me a lift to the mainland in his tiny plane. Captain Vance was kind and generous, tough and strong. His hands were as big as heads. His arms were mighty muscles developed during a lifetime of hard labor, working the waters off of Maine's most remote island. January 16th, 1992 was a frigid night. The outer reaches of Penobscot Bay swirled. The sea smoke was thicker than fog. Screeching winds gusted over 30 knots and there were four to eight footers of North Atlantic chop. That's the weather the tugboat Harkness was trudging through when she started taking on water. Lots of water. U.S. Coast Guard, uh, U.S. Coast Guard, Mayday, Mayday, Mayday. This is the tugboat Harkness. We're taking on water big time. Uh, we got the pumps going, but I don't think we're going to make it. Vessel in distress. This is the U.S. Coast Guard. What is your position? Over. Our current position is 43.885 north, 68.863 west. This is the vessel Harkness. Mayday, mayday, mayday. Vessel Harkness, this is the Coast Guard Station Rockland. Roger that. How many people are aboard? Over. Uh, Coast Guard, there's three of us. We're screwed, I think. Uh, it ain't looking good. I think we're going down over. Harkness, this is Station Rockland. Be advised to don survival suits ASAP. We have you plotted just on the northeast side of No Man's Land Island. Captain, you need to head southeast about two miles to Matinicus Island. Repeat, steam a southeast course two miles and you'll reach Matinicus over. Uh, Coast Guard, we saw that island on the chart. Thought it was uninhabited. Over. Vessel Harkness, this is Station Rockland. Matinicus is inhabited. I repeat, it is inhabited. Head southeast. It is your only chance. Over. On the island, people sprung to action. Captain Vance, along with Captain Rick Coles, 
and island handyman Paul Murray climbed aboard Captain Vance's lobster boat, the Jan Ellen, and headed toward the tug's last known position. The plan was to lead the Harkness safely into the harbor and lean her against the steamboat wharf, and the rest of us would bring the dewatering pumps on the fire engine. But the fire truck didn't start, and it didn't matter. No pumps could beat that winter night's watery wrath. Out at sea, the tug's stern went awash. The three-man crew abandoned ship as she went down. Come on, fellas, we gotta abandon ship! Abandon ship! Deep into the North Atlantic, gone forever. Meanwhile, Captain Vance and his crew battled the freezing spray and waves. The Jan Ellen was icing up. He couldn't see through the windshield, and there was nothing on radar anywhere near the last known position of the Harkness. They wouldn't spot the tug anyway, since Davy Jones had already taken her. These three island men, however, were hardy and determined. Engulfed in sea smoke, there was no sky. They stared into the churning gray and black froth all around them, searching, seeking. What about the men in the water? They must have known death would soon arrive. Were they praying, crying? Each man knew his end was near in minutes or even less. Did panic set in? Or sorrow? Hypothermia follows, drifting, 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 drifting towards unconsciousness. Cold, so very cold, so, so very, very cold. cold, so very cold. Jesus, Jesus. A miracle happened. One of the tug's crew had grabbed a waterproof flashlight. A Christmas present from his daughter before abandoning ship. His right hand was seized up and clenched tight around the gift. His frozen claw glowed into the dark night and the men aboard the Jan Ellen saw the light. In the middle of the savage sea, they pulled the sailor aboard. And then, wondrously, they spotted and snatched the two other men from the Reaper's grip. Captain Vance turned toward the island. His crew tore the wet clothing from the survivors and gave them semi-dry gloves and hats and the coats off their own backs. And when the Jan Ellen arrived at the steamboat wharf, the Matinicus men stood in t-shirts and trousers, half frozen. But not as cold as the crew of the Harkness. I know, firsthand, how cold the rescued men were. As one of three stern men standing on the wharf, I was chosen as a warm body. <laughs> and found myself in the back of someone's truck, sharing a sleeping bag with a fella just plucked from the sea. Stripped of his soaked loner coat and hat, his bare body was ice. I wrapped my arms around him and snuggled the shivering, chattering, nearly naked man. I remember his tidy whities wet against my pants. I shared my heat across the island until we got him inside Vance and Estee's house, where there's a warm fire and a huge pot of lobster stew and biscuits. My memory of the celebration will be foggy forever because I got drunk, real drunk. It was like a good Christmas party. 
Lots of joy and love for those around you. Vance making wisecracks. People laughing. The three strangers he saved sat at his table, blankets around their shoulders, hair still wet and salty from the sea, in shock. Slowly, hesitantly, they start to eat the best stew in the world. And biscuits, not believing they're alive, Wondering for a second if they're in heaven. <laughs>